0: Um, everybody. Okay, welcome to the Scottsdale Big Study, where we'll study the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous. Today is Saturday, the 12th of March. My name is Audrey, and I'm a grateful recovered compulsive overeater from County Mead in Ireland. <laughs> i host for today's study, and our co host is Sue L. and Nancy J. If you have any questions during the meeting, please contact either myself or, uh, or Nancy by private message in the chat function. Please note that the speaker, Harlan, will be recorded for the duration of the study. However, the question and answer sessions that follow will not be recorded. We will post the link to the previous week's recording in the chat function. We ask if you can please make sure you keep your microphone on mute at all times during today's study. And also, please turn off your video if you are exercising, eating, or if you need to step away from your screen for any reason. We will also post the link for the 7th tradition in the (coughs) chat. I will
1: now hand you over to Harlan. Thanks Harlan. Hi, thank you. Thank you very much. I really appreciate that. And I appreciate all the people who make this possible and all the people who come to it. It's just fabulous that you're here today. And we're gonna be talking today about one of the greatest miracles that the world has ever seen. And what is a miracle? A miracle is something that occurs that there is no explanation for. There's no earthly explanation for it. And uh, it's just a fabulous, fabulous miracle this morning that we're gonna be talking about. It's March the 12th. I hope it is is as gorgeous where you are as it is here in Arizona today. And I just wanna remind everybody before we begin today that tonight, Uh, Well, actually tomorrow morning at 2 a.m., you guys outside of Arizona and outside of uh, Hawaii are going to change your clocks. You're going to spring forward, but we are not. So for this meeting, there will be no change. I'm going to adjust. I'm going to start an hour earlier at 10 o'clock rather than 11, my time, so that you don't have to adjust on Saturday mornings. The reason that I'm telling you this is if you're in the state of Arizona, it will go earlier one hour. The other thing I will remind you of is for those of you who attend our Scottsdale meetings in the evening, those meetings will begin one hour later as of tomorrow because Arizona will effectively be on Pacific time because of the time changes that the rest of you will experience. So with that in mind, let's get started. We have been talking about Bill Wilson. And the reason that Bill's story is in the front of the book is because a guy by the name of Tom Uzzle, who edited the book moved it there. Originally, Bill's story was supposed to head off the story section of the book in the back. But when Tom Uzzle was called in, in late November, nineteen or November of 1938, the book was published or printed in, uh, in on April 10th, 1939. One of the things that he did, besides making changes and cuts, was he moved Bill's story. To the first page, the first part of the book, and so that we could identify with Bill. And if I really look at the way Bill thinks, do I identify, you bet that I do. Do I eat the way bill drinks you bet that I do so for me even though I've never been an alcoholic I'm not from East Dorset Vermont where Bill is from I I was not born in the in 1895 it doesn't seem to matter I identify with Bill right down the line and we have been talking about Bill Wilson and we have been looking at a couple of things. We have been looking at the progression of Bill's disease. And in the first eight pages of Bill's story, we see his disease getting worse and worse and worse and worse in every paragraph. And on every page, his disease, his attitudes, His he goes from a person who is thoroughly against suicide to considering it himself and he gets worse and worse and worse well now we have seen bill wilson and he has been hospitalized twice for his alcoholic consumption and the first time he got hospitalized he was under the care of Dr. William Duncan Silkworth, who was the medical director at Towns Hospital in New York City. And as the medical director, he exposed Bill to a theory, an opinion, a notion that he had. And what was that notion? What was that theory that he had? The theory that he had was that alcoholism was a disease. And he cited two components to that disease. The first thing he looked at was he believed through observation, he believed that there was an allergic physical component to this disease. Never before in the history of the world was there ever a physical component ever discussed As part of this disease for thousands of years, it was considered to be weak will, lack of discipline, lack of character, insanity, just plain being a drunk. And that's what people told me my whole life, my entire life from the time I was pre-kindergarten, people would be screaming at my mother and screaming at my father and telling my mother and father that I needed to get some discipline, but they needed to get the cake, the cookies and the candies out of the house. They could have put all the cake and cookies and candies out of the house. And I still would have been a compulsive overeater because food was doing something for me not to me, it did plenty to me, trust me, but it did something for me that it did not seem to do for other people. It gave me an instant sense of ease and comfort that Dr. Silkworth calls the effect. And that's the mental component to it. If we cannot drink or eat because of the physical allergy, and we cannot keep from eating or drinking because of the twist of the mind that's searching for this effect, then we are powerless over alcohol. And the second time that Dr. Silkworth lays eyes, now the first time Bill comes in, it's April of 33, 1933. The second time he comes in, it's April of 1934, one year later. And he comes to a conclusion through his observation that Bill is not just someone who's getting in trouble with liquor, but he is indeed what Silkworth would classify as an alcoholic. And when he saw Bill, he said to Lois that Bill is an alcoholic. And as an alcoholic, there was no remedy. And he told Lois and Bill was in the bed and Lois and Dr. Silkworth were standing in the doorway of of the hospital room that Bill was in. And Bill is waking up and he is hearing Lois talking to Silkworth and Silkworth is telling Lois, you're gonna either have to bury him in the cemetery. You're going to have to understand that he is gonna go mad. He's gonna get a wet brain and he is going to go to the insane asylum. And in order to circumvent that, Bill Wilson hears Dr. Silkworth giving Lois some pamphlets, some brochures from some asylums that he is recommending that Lois lock bill up in. And this is where we were in the treatment of alcoholics and the treatment of this in the 1930s. And for thousands of years, thousands of years, alcoholics were ostracized, shunned, stoned, Jailed when they had committed no crime, and they were institutionalized in asylums. Now, I want you to erase in your mind any antiseptic idea that you have of an asylum. And I want you to understand that the asylums for the drunk were horrible places. The men had it horribly, the women had it worse. Women and men alcoholics were given lobotomies against their will. They felt that if they just cut out their frontal lobe and made them vegetables, at least they wouldn't drink anymore. Women and men were sterilized against their will. Women were given hysterectomies if they were of the reproductive ages they were given hysterectomies against their will so that they could not pass on their evil genetics to the next generation of alcoholics and this is the barbarism this is the barbaric treatment of alcoholics that had been going on for thousands and thousands of years now what we're going to be discussing this morning is going to change all that forever and Bill Wilson is very down on his luck. He had been sober coming out of Towns Hospital for a while. He was sober from April of 1934 until November 11th of 1934. Uh, November 11th is Armistice Day. And on Armistice Day, 1934, Bill Wilson, who was a veteran of World War I he was a veteran and he decided that he was gonna go golfing. And he was gonna go golfing and took the bus to the end of the line where there was a golf course that he enjoyed playing golf on. And as he rode on the bus, a man boarded the bus with a shotgun. Could you imagine boarding a bus today with a shotgun and not being arrested or tackled or something? Could you just imagine how different the world is today? But this guy boards with a shotgun and he's gonna go do some skeet shooting on his day off. And he enjoyed skeet shooting. And Bill and and this fella are having a conversation. And the conversation is just small talk. Hey, nice weather. Oh, hey, where are you going? Oh, I'm going to go shoot some golf. Oh, I'm going to go shoot some skeets, whatever. I'm not sure what a skeet is, but it looks like a plate or a clay. They call it a pigeon. It doesn't look like a pigeon to me, but okay, whatever. Okay. But the bottom line is they're going. And what happens to the bus? The bus has an accident. The bus has a traffic accident. And they have to stop the bus. And what they have to do is wait for another bus for the city of New York to send in another bus. And while they're waiting for this bus, Bill Wilson and this gentleman go into a restaurant slash bar, and he's telling this man about how he is an alcoholic and how drink does not agree with him, and that if he takes one drink, he's going to drink beyond what he can comprehend. And then the guy comes over that Bill Wilson describes as an Irish bartender. I don't know whether the guy was Irish or not. The guy might've been whatever, but Bill Wilson describes him later in his writings as an Irish bartender. And he comes over with a couple of drinks and says, were you fellas in the war? And Bill and this other guy said, yes, we were. Yes, I was. Yes, he was. Yes. He puts down two drinks on the table, on the house. And Bill Wilson, without thinking, now he had just told this man, He had just had a conversation with this man about how he was an alcoholic and how beer liquor made his life a living hell. And with no more thought than anything, he takes the drink and he's drunk because the mental twist caused him to take the first drink and the physical allergy caused him to drink so much that he never got to golf, but he was in that bar drunker than you could imagine. Do I relate to the way Bill thinks? Yes. Do I eat the way Bill drinks? Yes. And in November of 1934, after triggering the physical allergy, Bill Wilson is in his home at 182 Clinton Street and the phone is going to ring and we're going to pick up one paragraph and then we're going to stop again and I'll give you the backstory. I'm on page eight and Bill's story is really divided into two sections. The first eight pages of Bill's story are about Bill's uh, descent into the madness of alcoholism and the second eight pages are about how a recovery therefrom was affected. So My musing, or excuse me, near the end of that bleak November, I'm on page eight. Near the end of that bleak November, I sat drinking in my kitchen. With a certain satisfaction, I reflected there was enough gin concealed about the house to carry me through that night and the next day. My wife was at work. I wondered whether I dare hide a full bottle of gin near the head of our bed. I would need it before daylight. Now, before I read another word, I'm going to tell you about the greatest miracle that has happened in this world since the Cubs won the World Series in 2016, which was quite the miracle. Anytime a Chicago team wins a championship, you have to consider it a miracle because they normally don't win. But the bottom line is, we're gonna go back in our minds to Rhode Island. The smallest state in America is Rhode Island, but lots and lots of wealthy people live there. And one of those families that lived in Rhode Island, one of those industrialist families was a family whose last name was Hazard. And their wayward son, Roland, was an alcoholic. Their wayward son, Roland Hazard III, was indeed afflicted with alcoholism, so much so that in the late 1920s, he sequestered himself on a Caribbean island. And as he was sequestered on this Caribbean island, there was a quartermaster who came by ship to give him food and make sure he was okay and to give him supplies. But he was instructed by Roland himself not to bring any liquor. And he didn't. And for the year that Roland was on this Caribbean island, he managed to stay sober completely, and he had no problem. Roland feels it's time to get off the island. Not only is he cured now, since he has remained sober for a year, but he needs to get back to business and he needs to get back to Rhode Island. Roland's family was very, very wealthy. They owned major a major company at that time called Burlington Mills. And if you've ever walked on carpeting, you've probably walked on Burlington Carpeting. And that was the company that they owned. They had been in this country since the 1600s, late 1600s. So they had lots of time to make a lot of money. They also were major players in another company Company that is still traded on the New York Stock Exchange today called Allied Chemical. So these were very wealthy people. And Roland went to Miami first. And when he got to Miami after this year on the island, he was drunk before you could say Bob's your uncle. Not only was he drunk, he was incapacitated by his inebriated state. So much for being cured. Now, in its infancy in the early 1930s was the art of psychiatry. See, we think of psychiatry as being around for centuries. That is not true. That is absolutely not true. Psychiatry is mostly a product of the 1930s, 40s, and the middle part of the 20th century. And since money was never an object, Roland sought out the services of who reputation pointed him to was the preeminent psychiatrist in the world, Sigmund Freud. And Freud was not taking on any new patients. So he says to Freud, who is your number one protege? And he tells him about Dr. Adler. And Dr. Adler gets approached by Roland Hazard and Roland finds out that Dr. Adler is not taking on any new patients either. So he says to Adler, Adler, who do you recommend? Who do you think is the next one in line that may be able to help me? And Adler points him in the direction of a guy by the name of Carl Jung. J-U-N-G is pronounced Jung. That's where the Jungian psychiatry comes from is Carl Jung. And not today, but maybe in a week or two, we're going we're gonna to have the letters between Bill Wilson and Dr. Jung. We're going to read them here so you can get a glimpse of the communication that happened in 1960, some 20 some years later. But what we're going to talk about today is that Jung was in Switzerland, Geneva, Switzerland. So Roland had to go by ship across the Atlantic to get to Dr. Jung and he checked himself into a hospital and Jung treated him in this hospital for one year. He came there in 1931, and in, by 1932, Roland was in this hospital. You can't do that today. Hospitals are not hotels. You just can't check in and check out. You can't do that today, but Roland could at that time, and Jung treated him, and at the end of the year, Dr. Jung, this is 1932, <clears throat> hold on one second here. Dr. Jung says to Roland Hazard, I've just about exhausted anything and everything I could possibly tell you. You are free to return to the States and go home. And this was 1932. And Roland is excited. He's going to go home and he goes to Paris. And from Paris, he is going to get a ship that is going to take him back to New York. And from New York, he'll go to Rhode Island. Only when he gets to Paris, who does he happen to run into but two very, very dear friends of his parents who are vacationing there? Now, this was the height of the Depression. You had to have a lot of money to be able to go to Paris on a vacation. But Roland's parents had friends and they were also wealthy, uh, birds of a feather kind of thing. And they were vacationing in Paris. And Roland explains to them when asked, what are you doing my boy in Paris? It's wonderful to see you. He explains to them about how Jung cured him of his alcoholism and that Jung has assured him that he was free to return to the States. And they celebrate by busting a bottle of France's finest bubbly. And they order a bottle of the best champagne that this restaurant had and they bust open that bottle of champagne. And within a very, very short period of time, Roland is incapacitated by his inebriated, drunken state. Was he cured after the island? No. Was he cured after Dr. Jung? No. Roland goes back to Switzerland and asks Dr. Jung, what happened? Now, is it odd or is it God that Roland got to Jung rather than than Adler or Freud? Because Adler and Freud believed that all solution lie within the mind. They believed that solution lie within the cerebral. Maybe he believed he wanted to have Sex relations with his mother or something. I have no idea. I don't know. But I've heard that Freud was big on that mother son kind of thing. I don't know. But anyway, it was a God thing. Is it odd or is it was it God that he got to 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 Jung because Jung said to Roland Hazard after being begged and Jung says to Roland, there's nothing we can do for you. You're going to die of this alcoholism. I have misjudged you and no amount of treatment by me is going to make one bit of difference when it comes to your alcoholism. You are going to either be locked in an asylum or die And you are not gonna be able to prevent that. Now, Roland begs Jung, is there no exception? And Jung says to him, yes. Now, Adler wouldn't have said this and Freud wouldn't have said this, but Jung did. Is it odd or is it God that he got to Jung? Jung says here and there, there are people who have had a vital spiritual experience. Now, what is the difference between a spiritual experience and a spiritual awakening? A spiritual experience is sudden and profound right now. And a spiritual awakening is what I have every day, something that is slow in developing, something that takes time. He says, here and there, there are people who have experienced, who have had a vital spiritual experience, and it alters their ideas, emotions, and attitudes. And Roland, infused with optimism, infused with the one thing that he could do to maybe rise above this this damn alcoholism, he goes back to New York. And while he's in New York, this is 1932, while he's in New York, he goes, instead of going to the Protestant church, the Catholic church, the whatever church you have, he goes into something that was also in its infancy at that time. And he goes into the Oxford group movement. The Oxford groupers were people who were practicing first century Christianity to the best of their ability. They were founded by a Lutheran minister named Frank Buckman and Buckman had a resentment against the Lutheran church. And he had a church in, Ox, in near Oxford in England, not far from Oxford University. And that's where they got their name. They would travel around on public transportation and people started referring to them as the group from at Oxford, the Oxford group, and their name stuck. And Frank Buckman was very, very, aware that Christians had lost their enthusiasm. There's an interesting word, enthusiasm. It comes from two old Greek words, entheos from God. entheos from God. That's where the word enthusiasm comes from. entheos from God. And Buckman believed that that the Christians in the 1930s had fallen down in their adoration and devotion to Christ, that they were not as enthusiastic as the early Christians were. And he went on a mission to China. And while he was in China, he saw Christians that possessed this enthusiasm. He found what he had been looking for all along. And he wondered, why did these Christians have such enthusiasm? Why were they so instilled with the spirit of their Christianity, with the enthusiasm of their Christianity, and the English Christians and the American Christians were more blasé? And he found that the ones that he saw in China practiced something called altruism. Remember Dr. Silkworth, in the doctor's opinion, calls our movement an altruistic movement. Altruism means giving with no expectation of return. Just like sponsorship. you give and give and give, but you don't if you're if you're on your game, you have no expectation of return. We are not in the results business. We give, so that we can keep a little of it. And we give and give and give, and the more we give away, the more we get to keep, right? That's what we do, all right? Now, Buckman goes back to England and he says, hey, gather around everybody, I have found an answer. And he tells him about this altruism, this giving and giving, and this is what he believed that Christianity lacked. Now, Buckman, one of his disciples, one of his students was a guy who is going to play a major role in AA history, and he is an Episcopal minister, and he will be the point man in America at the cavalry mission in New York City, and his name is Sam Shoemaker. And Sam Shoemaker will take over the cavalry mission in New York City. And the next time we go to Newark to go to the vision convention, don't ask me in the question and answer when that's gonna be. I don't know any more than you do. I'm just praying on it every day so that we can do more than be here on Zoom, that we can embrace and we can break bread together and we can laugh together and we can cry together And I also pray the same thing about the OA birthday in Los Angeles around Martin Luther King Jr.'s birthday every year, because the OA birthday and the Vision Convention are the best conventions for recovery that I have ever been around, and I've only been here for 43 years. The OA birthday is a wonderful convention and the Newark convention is a wonderful convention. But if you take the time when you're in Newark to go into New York City and you go to the cavalry mission, you go to the right and then right again, and you will see a stained glass window. And at the bottom of the stained glass window, you will see inscribed, donated by Roland Hazard III and roland hazard goes to new york and he meets up with sam shoemaker and sam shoemaker is in charge of the cavalry mission in new york and they are people unconcerned with alcoholism but they are practicing first century christianity to the very best of their ability and while he's there now we're in 1933 while he is there He meets up with a guy by the name of Zebra Graves Jr., C-E-B-R-A, Zebra Graves Jr., and another fellow by the name of Shep Cornell. And they become fast friends, and they are bound together by this undeniable fact that the three of these men, without knowing the problem of alcoholism, because they didn't know Dr. Silkworth, they didn't know about the physical allergy, they didn't know about the twist of the mind, they didn't know about anything concerning the problem of alcoholism, but what do they know? They are alcoholics bound together as we are bound together today in their quest for sobriety, and they are staying sober without knowing the problem. They are working the six-step program of the Oxford Group, and they are doing whatever they can do to be of maximum service to God and the people about them. They are doing the very best they can to practice the four absolutes of the Oxford Group movement. The four absolutes are absolute honesty, absolute purity, absolute unselfishness and absolute love. And the six steps of the Oxford group movement, although it has been revised, it wasn't really what we're saying here, but it revised for alcoholics. Number one, complete deflation. Number two, dependence and guidance from a higher power. Number three, a moral inventory. Number four, confession. Number five, restitution. Number six, continued work with other alcoholics. And that was what they were doing. And they were staying sober without knowing the problem of what is alcoholism. But they're sober. Now, I want to bring you up to 1934. Shep Cornell is sober. Cibra Graves Jr. is sober. And Roland Hazard is sober. Now I wanna bring you to Albany, New York. Let's leave the guys in New York, Roland, Zebra, and Shep. Let's leave them in New York. And we're gonna go upstate to a place called Albany, New York. It's the state capital. The street that I was born and raised on was Albany Street in Chicago. My address when I was a little boy was on Albany Street. Albany Street is in Chicago, anyway. We're going to go there and we're going to meet a man named Edwin Ebby Thatcher. Edwin Eby Thatcher also comes from a prestigious family. They were in the steel business, the metal business. Eby's father at one time was the mayor of Albany, New York. His brother also ascended to the mayoralty of Albany, New York after this story takes place. But for right now, Edwin Eby Thatcher is part of a larger Thatcher family. And Edwin Eby Thatcher is an alcoholic and boy, is he an alcoholic. And the Thatchers and the Hazards have summer homes in a place called Manchester, Vermont. I've been to East Dorset, I've been to Manchester and he is embarrassing the family with his drunken escapades. And they say to him, damn you, Ebby, go to Manchester, get the summer home ready, we'll be up there soon, but get out of our sight, you're making us mad, you're you're embarrassing us with your drunken escapades, go to Vermont, damn it, and he goes up there in April of 1934, and Ebby is painting a wall Ebby's the guy that's not Bill behind me. I don't know if you can see these guys or not. Bill is the Bill guy, and the other guy is Ebby Thatcher. I brought them out here because I knew that we were going to be talking about this today. And Ebby Thatcher is painting a wall, and some pigeons land on the gutter. So he does what any normal alcoholic who's drunk, who's been drinking while he's painting does. He goes inside and gets his shotgun and he comes back out and he's blasting the gutter and blasting the wall. Of course, the pigeons are long gone by that time. And the neighbors get scared and they call the police and the police come and they say, oh, it's you, Thatcher. Again drunk, what the heck is going on this time? and they put him on double secret probation. Did you ever see the movie Animal House? They put the Delta House on double secret probation. But anyway, what they tell him is, if you get drunk one more time, you're going to Brattleboro. Now, what is Brattleboro? Brattleboro is a city in Vermont, yes. And I ate lunch there with my sponsor and a couple of other people years ago when we were in Newark and we took the trip to East Dorset, Vermont. But anyway, Brattleboro is more than just a city in Vermont. Brattleboro is where the state asylum for the insane is located in Vermont. So what they were effectively telling Abby is you get drunk one more time. You're going to an insane asylum. You're going to Brattleboro. May comes, June comes, July comes, August comes. He's been a good boy. August comes, he's driving drunk. He's driving and he is boiled as an owl. He is as drunk as drunk can be. And he drives right into a woman's home in in Manchester, right? Crashes through the wall in his car. He destroys the car. He destroys this poor woman's kitchen. And rather than showing any contrition whatsoever, rather than showing any remorse whatsoever, he hops out of the car, thinks he's a funny man, and brings his cup up and says, Hey, Tuts, how about a cup of coffee? She calls the police. The police come in late August of 1934 and lock Ebbie up in the lockup in East Dorset, Vermont. He is in there over the Labor Day weekend, 1934. It is now September of 1934. Now let's leave Ebbie in his cell and let's go back to New York and let's look in on Roland and let's look in on Shep. And zebra, primarily Roland and zebra, because Shep will not figure into this now. Zebra Graves Jr. accompanies Roland to the first trip back to Rhode Island that Roland has taken in quite some time. And he goes home and he sees his mother and father and he is sober. And Roland's parents are Kmelling. The Yiddish word of the day is Kmelling. What is Kmelling? Rapture beyond belief. Like you're up there watching your daughter become president of the United States or whatever, the president of Microsoft or whatever that might be. And they're quelling about their Roland, who had been drunk, and how they how many times he's gotten into ugly scrapes with his drinking. And he is in this Oxford group and he's sober. And they say to Roland and they say to Sebra Graves Jr., hey you guys need a break. You've been working your butts off down there at the uh, Cavalry Mission, and you need a break. Go anywhere you want and we'll pay. And Sebra Graves Jr. says to Roland Hazard, I've come to your folks in Rhode Island. I would like you to come meet my folks in East Dorset, Vermont. And who was born and raised in East Dorset, Vermont? You're right, Our hero, Bill Wilson, was born and raised in East Dorset, Vermont. And who just happens to be in the lockup in September of 1934? That's correct. Edwin Eby Thatcher. Now, is it odd or is it God that Sieber Graves Jr. and Roland Hazard get into Vermont about the first week of September, 1934, because had they gotten there a week earlier, I'm in a grave in Waldheim Cemetery in Chicago in a piano case. Had they got there one week later, I'd be dead and in my grave in a piano case in Chicago, Illinois, at Waldheim Cemetery. They happened to come the very week that that Ebby was still in the lockup awaiting awaiting um extradition to the Brattleboro Insane Asylum. Now they knew Ebby and they knew of his drinking, and they hear about his escapades. And they want to appeal to the judge to release Ebby to their care. And Sebra Graves Jr. and Roland Hazard approached the judge on Ebby's behalf and asked the judge, Will they remand Ebby to their care? Let us take Ebby to the Oxford group in New York and see if we can do something for him while he's there. And the judge in this case just happens to be a man whose name is Zebra Graves Sr. And Zebra Graves Jr. appeals to Zebra Graves Sr. And Roland Hazard says, Remand or release him to our care. And in September of 1934, although he is not exactly a fireball of enthusiasm, He is in the Oxford group in New York with what he will describe as a bunch of holy frickin' rollers, but it beats sitting in an asylum and he does what they say. And from September to October, he gets one month of sobriety. And then from October to November, he gets two months of sobriety. He has now been sober for two months for the first time in his adult life. Now, in November of 1934, he is approached by the Oxford group and they say to him, you have to go give testimony. And he says, what's that? Go tell somebody what Christ and what God did for you so that they will come into the Oxford group. And he says, I don't want to do that. And they said, oh, that's okay, you don't have to. We'll remand you back to Brattleboro Insane Asylum. And he says, you know what? Now that I've had a chance to think about it, I think I'll go give some testimony. And he thinks, and he thinks, think, 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 think think, like Winnie the Pooh. He thinks, 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 who can he give this message to? And he thinks about his old drinking buddy. And he thinks about the one guy that he knows he can go give testimony to where he won't embarrass himself. And that guy is Bill Wilson. And Bill and Ebby did lots of drinking together, lots of drinking together. Ebby used to say, if I ever get to be as bad a drunk as Bill Wilson, I'm gonna quit. And Bill Wilson used to say, if I ever get to be as bad a drunk as Ebby Thatcher, I'm going to quit. You know, it's just like I used to do. If I ever get to be as nuts as this person or whatever, I was the fattest person around. I couldn't compare that way. But you you know, you've all done that. You've done the comparison routine. This is how they used to do with each other. And Ebby Thatcher is coming to call on Bill Wilson in late November of 1934 at 182 Clinton Street in Brooklyn, New York. And we're gonna let the book tell us what happens now because what happens now is going to be a miracle that is going to save 1,000 years from now, 10,000 years from now is gonna save the life of anybody who taps in to these 12 steps. It is said by many that the three most important events of the 20th century going now thousands of years out, what will the 20th century be remembered for? These are the three things. Number one, man's flight at Kitty Hawk, the 20th century trans trans uh, for, for uh, trans not trans, it, it transformed us into an airplane age. Number two, the computer slash atomic age. And number three, the development of the 12 steps of Alcoholics Anonymous. And let's take a look at what's going on. We don't have a ton of time left. I almost fell off my chair. I thought I could get done with this much quicker than I actually did but we're gonna take a look and we'll get as far as time permits us. We're at the very, very bottom of page eight. My musing was interrupted by the telephone. (sighs) Sorry, the cheery voice of an old school friend asked if he might come over. He was sober. Now, you have to remember that Ebby hadn't been in New York sober in years. Every time people saw him in New York, he was bombed out of his mind, bombed out of his mind. And that's something you need to remember as we refer to these things. Ebby was an alcoholic. It was years since I could remember his coming to New York in that condition. I was amazed. Rumor had it that he had been committed for alcoholic insanity. See, Bill knew what was going on. He heard through the grapevine what the heck was going on with his buddy, Ebby Thatcher. I wondered how he had escaped. Of course he would have dinner and then I could drink openly with him, unmindful of his welfare. I thought only of recapturing the spirit of other days. There was that time we had chartered an airplane to complete a jag. His coming was an oasis in this dreary desert of futility. The very thing, an oasis. Drinkers are like that. Eaters are too. I loved my binge buddies. There were certain friends that I had that would chat, chastise me up and down for eating. Why are you eating this? Why are you eating so much? Why are you doing this? Why are you doing that? But then there were binge buddies where we could just go crazy together and we could eat everything, but the chairs and the walls. I mean, it was just, it was just like a jailbreak with the eating. Eaters are like that, too. At least I was. Can I relate to the way Bill thinks? You bet I can. Do I eat the way Bill drinks? You bet I do. Do I relate to Bill Wilson? Right down the line, buddy. Right down the line. The door opened and he stood there fresh skinned and glowing. I stood at 182 Clinton Street, fresh skinned and glowing, and I have the pictures to prove it. And if I can find some of them, I'll post them next week behind me. There was something about his eyes. He was inexplicably different. What had happened? I pushed a drink across the table. He refused it disappointed, but curious. I wondered what had gotten into the fellow. He wasn't himself. Come, what's all this, what's all this about? I queried. He looked straight at me simply, but smilingly, he said, I've got religion. Well, I'm sure glad that wasn't happening in my kitchen that day because I would have thrown the person out knowing that I don't want to be preached at. I don't want any rabbis coming out of the woodwork telling me I shouldn't eat Twinkies. I just want to be left alone with my Reese's peanut butter cups, my Bonamo taffy, and my chocolate covered cherries. I don't want anybody telling me from, a, from any pulpit why I shouldn't eat. I'm aware of all of it. You don't understand. I can't live without eating. And that's what I thought in those days. I was aghast. So that was it. Last summer, an alcoholic crackpot. Now I suspected of a little cracked about religion. He had that starry-eyed look. Yes, the old boy was on fire, all right. But bless his heart, let him rant. Besides, my gin would last longer than his preaching. But he did no ranting in a matter-of-fact way he told how two men Seber Graves Jr and Roland Hazard had appeared in court persuading the judge to suspend his commitment they had told of a simple religious idea and a practical program of action that was 2 months ago and the result was self-evident it worked so bill wilson is thinking what the heck is going on here but remember he triggered the physical allergy on November 11th. He's drunk. Abby's sober, but Bill is drunk. He had come to pass his experience along to me, dash, if I cared to have it. And that's a very big thing about pushing this message. If the person doesn't want it, leave them alone. Leave them alone. If they say flat out to you, I don't want to quit. I don't want to stop. I don't want to stop doing this. I don't want to stop doing that. What does the big book tell us? Leave the person alone. That's what we do. He talked, oh, sorry, but I was shocked, but interested. Certainly I was interested. I had to be, for I was hopeless. And if you remember back when we discussed the doctor's opinion, one of the definitions I have of hopeless, even though it's not the definition, is I have to be out of ideas. And when I'm out of ideas, the only place to go is up. Why know Joe Leaf, he used to call, he was a circuit speaker years ago, AA circuit speaker. He used to say, when do you know you when when do you know you've reached bottom or when do you what do you do when you've reached bottom stop digging stop digging the hole you can stop digging at any point in life he talked for hours they knew each other they went to they went to grammar school together they went to you know they they these guys knew each other for a very very long time they went to burr and burton academy at that time it was burr and burton seminary it was a private school that bill's uh, pa- grandparents and ebby's parents sent them to in manchester vermont they were teammates in 1910 when bill was 15 on the baseball team. So at Burr and Burton, they became very, very good friends. And Ebby and Bill, they have a lot of memories together, mostly about getting soused, but they had a lot of memories. Childhood memories rose before me. I'm, I'm on page 10. I'm at the top of 10. I could almost hear the sound of the preacher's voice as I sat on still Sundays way over on the hillside There was that proffered temperance pledge. Uh, I'll circumvent one of your questions. What does proffered mean? Take off the P and the R, it's offered. Proffered means offered, offered temperance pledge. What's temperance pledge mean? It's a pledge that you will never drink alcohol. The Women's Christians Temperance Union started by Carrie Nation in Evanston, Illinois, lips to touch liquor will never touch mine that kind of thing that's what led you to the 18th amendment of the constitution for prohibition henry ford was a teetotaler nelson rockefeller was a teetotaler these were people that supported people they didn't support them financially but they supported this idea of never drinking liquor among many others many others as I sat on still Sundays way over there on the hillside, there was that proffered temperance pledge I never signed, my grandfather's good-natured contempt of some church folk and their doings, his insistence that the spheres really had their music, but his denial of the preacher's right to tell him how he must listen, his fearlessness as he spoke of these things just before he died, these recollections welled up from the past, they made me swallow hard. That wartime day in old Winchester Cathedral came back again. Now, let's take a look at that old wartime uh, day in Winchester Cathedral. What was Bill's experience there? He's going to mention it three times. It must be important. Bill goes to the seat of the Protestant religion that he follows, and he sees this tremendous church. And he sees this graveyard and he goes to a man's grave whose name was Thatcher and his friend is named Thatcher. And this guy, Thatcher, here lies a Hampshire grenadier who caught his death drinking cold, small beer. A good soldier is ne'er forgot whether he dieth by musket or by pot. He's looking at the grave of a man named Thatcher who died in the 1600s from drinking too much beer. And he had been warned by his grandparents and his parents and the relatives not to drink. Bill's grandfather on his father's side, his paternal grandfather, destroyed his family with drinking. Bill's father blew up their family with his drinking. And here he is, he's drinking, but he goes to England and he sees this and he doesn't want to die from his alcoholism. And he is very moved by this uh he's very moved by this tombstone and he's very moved and he says i don't want to die like this but he he was an alcoholic there was really not much he could do there wasn't anything he could do that he knew of i had always believed in a power notice it's capitalized greater than myself i had often pondered these things i was not an atheist few people really are I know that there are people who claim to be atheists and I'm not I'm not disparaging that at all, but I think most of the people, in my opinion, I could be wrong. I don't want to say anything to offend anyone. If you're an atheist, God bless you, but I think there's even more people that run around and they're really mad at God. They're really upset at God. I believe that there are people who are atheists, and that's fine, and they're agnostics. Agnostic isn't sure one way or the other. Atheist believes there is no God. Believers believe that there is a God, but I think that those pockets of agnosticism where you don't really believe god is going to be there for you that can be very very deadly that can be very deadly and i think that if you're an atheist you can recover if you're an agnostic you can recover but if you're mad at god i think it, you know you have these deep-seated resentments against god that can be the most difficult path to follow and these are things we have to overcome through maybe choosing another god maybe working on that with our sponsor uh, I did. I've done a special editions and I did something on the OA birthday years ago with my sponsor about finding a higher power. I had to resolve those anger issues that I had with God. And when I did and I resolved a lot of that, it really made a difference in jumpstarting my recovery. Just a little food for thought. I'm not preaching. I'm just sharing my life with you. For that means blind faith in the strange proposition that this universe originated in a cipher, a cipher is nothing and aimlessly rushes nowhere. My intellectual heroes, the chemists, the astronomers, even the evolutionists suggested vast laws and forces at work. Despite contrary indications, I had little doubt that a mighty purpose and rhythm underlay all. How could there be so much precise and immutable law and no intelligence. I simply had to believe in a spirit of the universe capitalized who knew neither time nor limitation, but that was as far as I had gone. So what Bill is echoing is the very sentiment that his grandfather Griffith taught him. Yes, there is a God. I just don't want you telling me how I must believe in that God. I don't want you telling me how to think about what God is or what what God is not, but he is conceding absolutely that in his heart and in his mind, yes, there is a spirit of nature. How else could there be a world? Let's continue on the bottom of 10 with ministers and the world's religions. I parted right there. When they talked of a God personal to me, who was love, superhuman strength and direction, I became irritated and my mind snapped shut against such a theory. So in other words, he believed that there was a God. But when people try to tell him that this God can be personal to you, it's a difficult thing for him. And it was very difficult for me too, because I had called on God many times to help me. I wanted to be invisible. I didn't want anybody to see me. I prayed for invisibility. I was an object of ridicule. People yelled things at me from cars. People belittled me. People treated me like garbage. People treated me as if I was a thing slapping my stomach and slapping my ass in public. And I didn't even know these people. I didn't even know them, calling me names, telling me I had no discipline, reminding me what a fat slob I was, and it was very tough, and I had to swallow it, and I had to pretend that it didn't bother me. Let's do one more paragraph. To Christ, I conceded the certainty of a great man, not too closely followed by those who claimed him, his moral teaching most excellent. For myself, I had adopted those parts which seemed convenient and not too difficult. The rest I disregarded. So in other words, he took it cafeteria style. He'll take a little here and a little there and the rest he is going to leave alone. Now I'm going to stop there and it's time, which I can't even hardly believe is time already. But before I turn this back over to either Nancy or Sue or Maria, or I don't even think Maria's here today. But by, before I do that, I'm just going to remind you of a couple of things. Number one, we didn't cover a lot of ground today in terms of the book, but I want to give you the historical background on what we're seeing here. I think it's important. And to me, it enhances it. And hopefully it'll enhance it for you too. I don't know. But the bottom line is, If you asked a question last week, please step back and let people who didn't ask a question come to the forefront and no math, no math and no food. And remember before I let you go, this is not so much for this big book study, because I'm going to make the adjustments so you don't have to, but if you're in the state of Arizona then this big book study will begin one hour earlier next week. And if you come to our evening meetings, our evening Scottsdale meetings, those meetings will begin one hour later as of tomorrow, as of tomorrow. Okay. Either Sue or Nancy, take it away.
0: Harlan, it's Audrey, I'm just going to hand it over to, um, to Sue-L and Nancy um, for okay. questions and answers. <clears throat> okay. Thanks. Okay, uh, great. This is our 30-minute uh, time for just asking questions.